This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Was the 1980s the best decade to become a television writer? If I if I had a writer, uh, I would I would know what to say next. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s from a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co-host, Ray. What's up? How is your day going so far? Good. Hey, happy Father's Day. Same to you, buddy. And happy Father's Day to all those middle-aged uh, 1980s kids like ourselves. Hopefully you're being a good father in the sense that you're passing on, just like Ray and I, passing on a tradition of love and appreciation for the importance and uh, entertainment value of all the pop culture from the 1980s. I mean, you could quiz either of our kids. Our kids would do fine on a 1980s pop culture test of sorts. Yeah, it would depend on what the topics were, but yeah, no. they do good. That's true. You're right. My My... Uh, this will probably make perfect sense, right? My, my daughters probably don't know least about punk rock and those sort of things that I didn't know much about. But um, although they've learned a lot now from doing the show, because I pass on sort of the things we learn or that I'm reading about. Yeah, they would do good with movies, though, for sure. Yeah, and yes, I'm reminded of that, uh, you know, seeing the posters behind you from all the 1980s films that I know you've already shown with your, shared with your kids uh, on your screen there in your basement there. So uh, a little bit later... We're going to be talking with, so this is very exciting, a little bit later we're going to be speaking with Don Todd, who, you say, only one of the most important uh, writers, creators, producers, multi-hyphenates of the last four, I guess going on five decades now, if you count it. He worked in the 80s, the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and now it's 2020 and he's still working, right? So he's working in fifth decade now. He's worked on so many shows. Most recently, here's one you'd know, NBC's This Is Us. You heard of it? Yeah, executive producer for, you know, over a dozen episodes of that show. But most importantly to us is he wrote, and we'll find out what else he did, uh, to bring one of our favorite shows, the one that we've been recapping for weeks now, to life, The Misfits of Science. All right, so that's in a little bit later. In the meantime, let's still get caught up on 80s news. So I don't know if this is Good news or bad news, you could tell me, uh, but it's certainly news because that's how we're characterizing it on our show, um, that we learned that not only did we uh, lose Steven Spielberg um, as a director on the forthcoming Indiana Jones 5, but we also uh, lost his, uh, you know, uh, often uh, partner and screenwriter, David Kep. David Pep, uh, David Kep, rather, uh, you know, worked uh, alongside Steven Spielberg with uh, Jurassic Park, War of the Worlds. David Kep has left the project as well. Hmm. Are we worried now? I guess we were worried a little bit when we found out Lucas and Spielberg weren't involved at all, but uh, now we lost David Kep too. I think it'll be fine. Um, if they left, it's because they left it in good hands. Yes. That, that's my opinion. Well, I guess in all fairness to uh, David Kep, he said that the reason he left is because he believes, quote, when James Mangold came in, he deserves a chance to take his shot at it. I'd done several versions with Steven, end quote. So yeah, he's, uh, David Kep had already written a draft apparently for this film and, um, you know, it was something he was working with, uh, with Spielberg on and, um, 
you know, believes like you're saying, it's a good hands and at least at least they should ha- be able to have their own creative vision. That seems incredibly generous uh, on his part. Yeah, and it might just put a fun twist on it. We'll see. Yes, and uh, I think we talked about, you know, I like other things that James Mangold has done, so I'm curious, and it'll, yes, I agree. I think we're at a point where maybe we need some kind of fresh something. We still, you know, well, we should just have, well, it's not an 80s movie, so I can't. We, I guess we can't have a great debate about uh, Crystal Skull, about the merits uh, of Crystal Skull, the pros and cons, but um, I agree it's time for a fresh something. Mm-hmm. All right, this is going to be a short news segment, I could tell with you already. You're not awake yet, or something. Yeah, well, sleeping in a tent <laughs> with uh, Amber Alerts going off all night long. You know, it's weird. His mind didn't... I saw that when I woke up, but I didn't hear it. it didn't, I don't think yeah. it rang my phone. And then um, waking up with dew all over me because mm. I left the top off of the tent so we could oh, look at the sky. Yeah. Yeah. And Brody got up at six. Because <laughs> kids have uh, boundless energy. Yeah, and then um, then I slept till 9.30. On the couch downstairs. <laughs> That's when you've got so, your I'm, real sleep. Yeah. So, yeah, that that was the real sleep. Yeah, in a tent on the ground. It was fun. But it hasn't been probably since the 80s that I slept in a tent. So when you were slept in a tent in the 80s, was that camping or was that likewise uh, pitching uh, a tent probably, in the backyard? Yeah. No, that would be backyard camping because yeah. that's always more fun. Yeah, because you can run into the house, get snacks and that sort of thing or use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Right. It might, might, even in, in Jersey City, New Jersey, uh, we did backyard camping, although not a whole lot. But my, my best friend at the time, Mark, was a Boy Scout. So he was, you know, I don't know what they did. They must have found some kind of woods somewhere there in Jersey City, which is a very large city. And there's definitely areas to go. Um, I never had gone. But so we did that. My, my dad, I think my, my dad would go camping with my uncles, you know, which I think were just weekends where they'd spend drinking pretty much and fishing. <laughs> drunk and yeah, and, and yeah keeping, that's, that's, that's what adults call camping. Yeah. Keep each other from dying. You yeah. know, while having fun. Um, so we did have a tent, and we would put it in our yard. Now, in Jersey City, uh, or in a city, you know, you, you may not have a yard at all. Often you don't have a yard. But I lived in the block I had. Everybody's, it's kind of like our development, where yards backed into each other, except they were all super tiny. And, I mean, it was, uh, you know, you, you shared a fence, and it wasn't very big at all. It's like postage size areas. So we didn't have a lot of space. It pretty much fit the tent. Mm-hmm. Um, which is fine. I don't remember enjoying that, though, even that kind of camping. <laughs> I like the building out the fire. That's my favorite part. Oh, yeah. My dad would not let us have a fire in the backyard. Hmm. Because of the proximity of the, like I'm saying, the way the city buildings were, you could probably easily sit the whole place down, like burn the whole place down, rather. Yeah, that's true. Besides the fact that the homes were like, you know, all 100 years old and <laughs> tinder boxes. Yeah, it's kindling. All right. So, hey, in other 80s news... uh, Motorhead frontman Lemmy Kilmeister. Kilmeister. Is his name Kilmeister? Yes. That's how you say that? Yes. I mean, that sounds like a name you'd... Is that his real name, I wonder? It's not his real first name. I think his first name is Ian. His first real first name isn't Lemonald or something that? No, I think it's Ian Kilmeister. Hmm. Come on, Kilmeister, if you needed a name for a... Well, what would their music be considered? Um, Motorhead. Motorhead? Okay, so for a guy who's fronting a band named Motorhead... Come on, Kilmeister's a name that you'd pick if you were trying to create a brand, right? That's amazing. I didn't know that about him. Okay. There you go. Real name is Ian Fraser Kilmeister. Wow. See, I wonder if the rest of the Kilmeisters say it as Kilmeister, or they say that guy was mispronouncing it, Kilmister. <laughs> all right, whatever. Anyway, so um, hey, good news for all you motorheads out there. Um, according to Deadline, 
uh, there is going to be a Lemmy biopic. Uh, Lemmy, which will, as Deadline writes, will take a look under the bass strings of the man who, along with Eddie Clark and Phil Taylor, wrote Ace of Spades. Uh, the film will be directed by Greg Oliver, who helmed the 2010 documentary Lemmy. So I guess he's uh, doing a more, you know, in addition to the documentary, uh, Greg is now going to be doing a film where you're going to hire a bunch of folks that look like, kind of like these guys and uh, do an actual the, the biopic treatment. Yeah, this could be a lot of fun if they tell the actual story of who he was and not just do him as a lunatic, but they actually do the cool mm. sides to him, too. So, mm. And they got to get somebody with that mole. That's going to be the trick. <laughs> what do you mean? They could do anything now on film. I guess. I mean, you don't even have to have a human. I'm still laughing about how you suggested they use puppets for children of the corn. <laughs> I just don't think that's a great <laughs> idea. Uh, but, well, Greg Oliver, again, who's going to be uh, helming this film, says, quote, everything you've heard about Lemmy is probably true. Mm-hmm. Not because he was embracing rock and roll cliches, but because he was creating them. Uh, end quote. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I know very little about them. I, t- I couldn't even tell you a song. I'm sure that's not going to surprise you. But I, can't, I couldn't tell you well, a song. I, Ace of Spades. Well, <laughs> see, I had already <laughs> forgotten that. <laughs> but yes, I couldn't hum a line for it. I guess the li- I'm hoping the words Ace of Spades are in it, but I'm not sure. They are. It's the chorus. Okay. Well, there, I know chorus now. But I know, obviously, uh, of the legacy of Lemmy. I know how much he was appreciated. I know that we lost him too soon, just a few years ago. And uh, so it, as soon as uh, they said they're going to be shooting in 2021, depending on the COVID situation, they hope to get started uh, sometimes next year uh, and planned to take it to the Cannes Film Festival. All right, in other 80s news, uh, we have learned from, is this a real thing? I don't know, showbiz cheat sheet? I guess they're, they're, they're probably summarizing the story from somebody else, right? Is that what happens? Uh, how George Lucas reacted to the Star Wars parody, Spaceballs. How would you guess your, uh, you know, your, uh, what, demigod, your uh, idol, George Lucas would react to the parody, Spaceballs? Well, from when he grew up in that generation, I think he would have reacted well to it, which I know he did because I've read several of these things that say the mm-hmm. same thing. So, right. So, yeah, he uh, got a good sense of humor about it. Yeah. And you know what's amazing about Lucas, in addition to Spaceballs, is if you check the internet, you just Google like Star Wars fan film or Star Wars probably parody. Star Wars Legos were, you know, animated Legos were a thing long before the Lego movie became a Lego. They're a reason that we have the Lego movies. Lucas, uh, to his credit, has never tried to shut down anybody who's done any of these fan picks. If you remember, there was that one that was in the 90s. It was like a cops show parody, but with stormtroopers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. What was it called? Troops? Uh, Something like that. I don't yeah. know, whatever it is. It's amazing. It's hilarious. He's never tried to shut any of these down because, you know, his philosophy has been if you're a fan and you're doing these things, you know, I want to encourage fans to express their love of Star Wars. It only helps us, you know, which is amazing because, yeah. you know, we can't play a, a clip of our show on YouTube if it's got, you know, three seconds of a song and it, they'll take the thing down. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the only thing he said was is no merchandising. That's right. So yeah, that was that was the only caveat, which is funny, of course, because you know Brooks parodies this in the parodies the idea of merchandising and Star Wars merchandising in Spaceballs itself. Yeah, with yogurt, you know, hawking a lot of uh, wares there. Um, 
according to uh, Mel Brooks, who told Entertainment Weekly that he was afraid he'd get sued by Lucas. So he sent them the script, and Lucas said it's fine. Uh, he was allowed to do anything except for merchandising. And even Industrial Light and Magic, who we were you know, praising just a couple of episodes ago, did all the special effects for Spaceballs. Uh, finally, when the film came out, uh, Lucas wrote Brooks, Brooks a, a note. This is Brooks telling the story, quote, uh, George wrote me a lovely note telling me how much he loved the picture. He said, it's dangerous comedy. I was afraid I would bust something from laughing. So you're right. Yeah, Lucas. Yeah. And in uh, another related story, he got a cease and desist letter after the movie came out. They were unaware Lucas sent him that letter. So oh. all he did was, yeah, he just made a copy of it and sent it back to him and never heard another word about it. So some attorney or some legal office at Lucasfilm uh, wasn't yep. aware that George had uh, okayed this. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. And that attorney was never heard from again. And I don't even know what that guy's name is because he's gone. Yeah, I would think. Hmm. Okay, hey, in other 80s news, uh, we just uh, learned uh, from Sean Penn, an appearance on the Jimmy Fallon Tonight Show, that he uh, got the role as Jeff Spicoli in uh, Ridgemont High, despite an awful audition. Yeah, imagine that, him giving an awful audition. Yeah, well, it is kind of hard to imagine, right? I mean, because he's mm -hmm. such a great actor. Yeah, and he played the part like it, he was born to play it. Yes. I mean, it was years before we knew that he wasn't Jeff Spicoli, right? I mean, <laughs> right. I don't remember what first film I saw him after that, but it was like, wait a second. This dude's an actor? This isn't some, like, you know, surfer dude that they found and just put in a film? Yeah, that's exactly what I thought they did. Yeah. So, yeah, he t Sean winds up telling this story uh, to Jimmy Fallon about... Um, his audition, and he says, uh, quote, the way I remember it was that I had, I, I long before I had a penny in my pocket, I had a feeling of entitlement as an actor, not because I thought I was good, but because I thought the rest were not good. So he had an, I had an awful lot of confidence. So um, he goes on to share the story about when he, he auditions terribly. So they just, you know, dismissed him and, and left. Um, and so he, you know, goes off to the, the parking lot he said uh, to his uh, Mazda, his beat-up Mazda, his broken-down Mazda, that um, he had actually borrowed to go to the audition. When casting director Don Phillips comes running out um, and says to him, and this is Sean telling the story again, get back in here and audition your ass off. You're not going anywhere. And so uh, from there on, he went back in, and the audition went a lot better, according to Sean Penn. And he says it... You know, they took they took somewhat of a gamble on him because, you know, obviously he had a bad audition and then a good one, but he had a, a great time actually making the film. Um, what I thought was interesting is is uh, reading about this story on movieweb.com. They point out that um, before we had Jeff Spicoli as this stoner character, uh, stoners were still tied to the hippie movement. So you picture them in the tie-dye and, you know, that sort of thing, where this was a, that this character in particular ushered in this new e era of the chill stoner you know it was more of this uh you know california uh surfer type yeah the uh the image that would hold for most of the 80s for him yeah yeah i guess it was our stoner yeah it was our version right this isn't your grandpa's stoner no or your, our, our mother's and father's stoner this is you know and he and obviously he's done so many films since again proving that wow he's a really good actor <laughs> yep all right, I think that's it for 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. Because I always forget, and I forgot already again, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it. 
If you're a listener and you don't follow us on Facebook, please come over there because a lot of fellow 1980s nerds are over there chatting and Ray's often on there chatting. And there's lots of fun things. We, you know, reminders about shows you loved and TV shows and, and music and, and movies and tons of trivia questions about uh, 1980s you can challenge yourself on. All right, so then let's, uh, let's talk to our guests. Um, our guest today began his career 35 years ago when a surprise call heralded his employee as a freelance writer on the 1985 reboot of The Twilight Zone. It was there that he first worked alongside some of Hollywood's veteran artists, including writer Harlan Ellison and director Wes Craven. And that's a trend that continued when he was next tapped by one of our favorite television producers, James Parriott, to write and do whatever else was necessary to bring our beloved misfits of science to screen. Later, our guest wrote for the revered series ALF, which featured misfits alum Max Wright. At the end of the decade, our guest created the show that would bring the legendary Dick Van Dyke back to a TV series with The Van Dyke Show. That was a short-lived show with a more interesting tale taking place off-screen. And in the many years since, our guest has worked as a writer and or producer consistently and successfully on television favorites, including Caroline in the City, Ugly Betty, Sleepy Hollow. In 2007, he created and produced the Christina Applegate program, Samantha Who, which was well-regarded by critics and viewers alike. And more recently, he was executive producer for the NBC hit, this is us. And today he continues to develop what will undoubtedly be a hit tomorrow. Please welcome to the show, Don Todd. Thank you so much for joining hey. us. Why, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This is so very exciting because what you don't know, you know, and maybe you're just finding out that uh, we actually took a little break because things got busy for us, lucky enough. But for beginning during the pandemic, we thought it would be fun to rewatch one of our favorite shows from the 1980s, The Misfits of Science. So week after week, we had been recapping the episodes. I believe it got to episode six or seven, and that was just a couple of weeks ago. And then we paused because we had a, a lot of, uh, we, were, we had the good fortune of having enough guests and content coming on that kept us uh, otherwise busy. Um, but this is a great way because we are just about to jump back into it. So it's so exciting to talk to you. So Don, I don't know if you know this, and maybe this is purposeful, but when, you know, when we speak to other folks, it's easy to find out lots about them to, to know, you know, sort of what, you know, sort of a jumping off point, but there's only four words describing you on your IMDB page. I don't know if you know what these are. That can't be true. Are those the four words? (laughs) (laughs) No, this is what I found. Alternate names, Don Todd. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I've, I've, my my uh, IMD page is uh, it's Donald Todd. You would look yeah, under yes. Donald Todd. Yes, yes. and uh, yeah, and that's uh, that's where everything well, is. Well, so. I guess I should be more specific. I'm in biographical information, personal. Details, oh, biographical information. Yes. Oh, that. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't even. I just finally allowed people to find me on Facebook. Oh, <laughs> I'm just not that. Uh, I'm not. I'm not that interesting. Yeah, and uh, and I know this is probably going to come as a, a moment of sadness for you having me as a guest on. <laughs> Your podcast, you know, just advertise themselves as just as dull as can be. Uh, but my biographical information consists of things that I've worked on mm-hmm. and um, uh, and and kids that I've had. <laughs> that's that's pretty much my life. Well, and your your IMDb page is is not even that interesting because again, 
alternate names, Don Todd. That's it. And I, yeah. You know, yeah, that's what I guess people, so. I guess people do write bios every now and then I look and say, who is this person? And they yeah. say, you know, I would say, you know, Donald Todd was born of the, it's like an obituary. Some of the people write an obituary <laughs> who their parents were and where they're from and where they took dance class. And yes. then they set out for Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I, I did not take dance class, but I did set out for Hollywood. Well, and that's what I want to ask you because, you know, mm-hmm. just looking at your IMDb page again, with little information, except, you know, except for your credits, it mm-hmm. seems like you live what, you know, lay people, I don't know if they think, well, maybe even more so now people think this, that this sort of idea of instant celebrity, you know, without the work hard, uh, without the work <laughs> ethic that's necessary. But to look at your IMDb page, it seems like that. It seems like you showed up at Hollywood and started writing for TV almost immediately. Your first credit that I see on there is from 1985, writing for The Twilight Zone that mm-hmm. had just Well, I arrived, I arrived in 81. So there's, okay. there's, a, there's a good four years there of, of not succeeding and and not succeeding spectacularly i mean i had i had all the worst jobs that you could have and so i have i'm i'm okay my 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 cv is perfectly full of of terrible jobs so when people start talking about the worst things they've done uh, yeah i I, i'm there because when you move out in 81 uh there's first we got your your listeners won't understand that there wasn't an internet at some point (laughs) but we had uh yeah you know we had uh we had telephones that plugged into the wall and, uh, uh, and, 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 and newspapers. And so that's how we yes. found jobs and we found, and, and so, yeah, I wrote, um, but what I did was I wrote every single night and all weekend. Mm. I knew I wanted to be a writer and I didn't know how you did that though. I had no idea. Right. So I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then during the day I had uh, jobs and then I wrote, wrote, wrote. And eventually four years later, I got a, um, I got a, an opportunity to write for Twilight Zone. Right. So they were doing a new a new Twilight Zone, and they were open to submissions for people who didn't have agents and who hadn't written anything for TV. So that was my break. I don't know what would have happened if that hadn't. You just oh. you don't know. Sliding doors, you know. Right, and that seems like a rare opportunity. I don't know. You know, certainly I'm not trying to make it as a writer in Hollywood, nor have I ever. But it seems like the idea of opening it up to just anybody who can write seems novel. Yeah, it was it was it was really unusual, and I know that they had wanted it to be a writer's medium because the original Twilight Zone had uh, used so many great and famous writers of its time. And they put people like Harlan Ellison, and that was a different story because Harlan was a a hero of mine, and I got to meet him on that. But he was somebody who had written the great anthologies. And so they they did it that way. They had producers, but they had one story editor and all freelancers. And that was was a model from even well before that. Nobody was doing that. So yeah, I'd, I was really lucky. I had written a third of a horror anthology with two friends of mine, and I just submitted my third, and it got me in. So yeah, so I wrote three episodes of Twilight Zone, and while I was writing those, I got an uh, opportunity to meet on a show called Misfits of Science. Right, very good, yes. And Harlan Ellison's actually from Cleveland, Ohio, which is where we were. I did not know that. Yeah. And uh, I'll be darned. Uh, Ray is often saying that everybody somehow related, to, connected to Ohio somehow. So does yep. does Twilight Zone become a, a crash course for you in the writer's room? Because you know, no, there was no writer's room. No, oh, okay. that's no. That uh, I had no experience in that because what you did there was it was it was really a very old model that they were bringing back, where the writer had ideas and came in and pitched to the producers, and so, they said yes or no, go write one. You know, then that's what I would do. I bring in like let's say three three stories. 
And in the room, I think Jim Crocker was a producer. And Jim Crocker said, you know, we like that one. Go write it. And I sat there for a minute and I went, oh, oh, you mean go write it. <laughs> so I went and then Literally. so I went back and uh, yeah. And so I went back to uh, went back. I was working as a publicist for Canon Films. And if you know anything about the 80s, uh, sure. Canon Films uh, is something to look into. But right. I was I was an assistant publicist for Canon Films. I went back to my desk. I got a call from Harlan Ellison, which was stunning. My boss said, uh, there's a Harlan Ellison on the phone for you. <laughs> and I picked it up and Harlan said, uh, he was just in this rapid fire way. He, he, uh, he said, we're going to buy that one. Uh, we're going to buy, we're going to buy that one, but right now I want you to write this other one. And he told me about how he was writing something and it was stepping on this and it was, it was coming out and there was a book coming out and I shouldn't just, I did, it just went on and on and on. But I said, but, but I have a deal. He said, oh, yeah, you're writing it. You're writing it. And he hung up. And then I said to him, I just kind of was stunned. And I looked across the office and I said to my boss, I said, so I'm going <laughs> to quit. And I quit. <laughs> wow. I said, how much notice do you want? And she said, a week. And I quit uh, just on that. Uh, you know, I don't know. Something just told me that if Harlan Ellison liked me, then I guess I could do it. It was yeah. it was probably dumb, but uh, <laughs> but I did. Yeah. So that really is a Hollywood story then, you know? It of... is. It is. Yeah. I and mean, one of my jobs I'd had before, right before that, I was giving Stars Homes tours. So it really is sort of, you know, I do a movie about it, but I was doing Stars Homes tours and then I got Canon films and I got to be part of that thing. And then I mm-hmm. got a $3,285 check for Twilight Zone. And that was the most money I've seen in one spot. I said, well, I, I'm done now. Right. So. Oh. And then I don't know what happened, but I didn't know if I ever was going to work. And then I got the job on Misfits, and even then I wasn't sure. But 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 Jim Perriott, who's the creator of the show, he was the one who said, oh, no, no, you'll be fine. And that was the first time anybody had ever actually said that to me. So, so I'll, I'll never forget that. Yeah, So and is, is Jim someone that you met uh, while working on Twilight Zone? Was that how you no. made the... No, I don't, I, I don't recall, honestly, why I got the meeting on Misfits. Uh, whether there was an agent who knew somebody. I had an agent. But she was not connected at all. She was brand new. That's the reason I got her. Is she was she didn't, had no clients at all. So uh, so I was her only client. So she might have gotten me a meeting there. I really don't remember. But I mean, uh, they were staffing, but they only had a six episode order, and so they only could hire a, a producer and a staff writer. That was it. It was mm-hmm. Jim Perriott and then one producer, a guy named uh, Maury Ravinsky, right. and and a staff writer, me. And that was that was it. But it was only going to be six episodes. So it was going to be a pretty short job. And what happened was they kept ordering episodes two or one at a time all through the year. So there was never a reason to increase the staff. Uh, We didn't get a back nine or anything like that. So we would get from six to eight and then we go. We get a ninth. Then we get ten and eleven. So the three of us wrote it, did the whole season. I think 18 was the season, something like that. I can't remember, but the, the, the three of us did all of it. Right. And it was exhausting. It was exhausting, but the best film, uh, film school I could ever have. Uh, I didn't go to film school and to, when there's only three of you, you have to do everything. Hmm. So Jim taught me, Jim just hands-on taught me how to, uh, how to cast, how to write, how to edit, uh, sound, everything. Everything all came from Jim Perriott because he had to get it done. Wow. I was really lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, and we've talked about, uh, I think in our first episode, and actually we did an episode some time ago about uh, short shows that were too short lived or or left us too soon. And there were so Mm -hmm. many around this time in the 1980s. And and, uh, Jim Perriott was responsible for, you know, a handful of those. 
uh, including Misfits. Yeah, the, right before that, what he had done to Voyager. Is that right? Voyagers? Uh, Voyagers, I think yeah. so. And yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but uh, Jim came up in that uh, in that universal television model that was a kind of a factory, and it doesn't. I mean, that's not necessarily a, that's a, not a pejorative. It's just right. they had a way of doing TV shows that you did. Period. And you had seven days, and you had twelve hours a day, and this is how you did it. And so you learned to write your scripts for that. It was great mm. because if so, I don't know how people coming up now honestly um, learn because the rule there are no rules. For anything. So you just start by breaking rules you've never learned. And we learned the rules. And Jim had learned them from uh, Ken, uh, Kenny Johnson, who had done stuff you know, for, like the Credible Hulk and things like right. that. And it was, at the time, Universal was doing shows like Magnum. And, uh, and they were just these, uh, just really kind of by the numbers, but still clever. And then uh, Miami Vice broke out. And Miami Vice became this outlier. Right. So I actually, my, my, I had um, Yorkovich's desk. He created Miami Vice. I had his desk, and Jim mm. said to me, "You got, you've got, you've got Tony's desk. You got to do some good work with it." Uh, but yeah, so I was just in, like suddenly in, you know, and and well in, and it was um, it was a great experience. But yeah, it was seven days a week. It was hard, mm. really hard, but it was great. So then, and knowing that, then you know, and, I, and obviously you're someone that we reached out to because. Um, we saw your names name on every episode, and on uh, mm-hmm. at least a handful, you had the you know you did have the written by credit, but uh, you were mm-hmm. at least a story editor. Eventually, uh, partway through the season, you were known as uh, executive story editor. Oh, was I? Okay, uh, no, I think I was staff writer <laughs> and story editor. Okay. Did I get to exact? I don't know. Whatever. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but uh, now, hearing what you're saying, I mean that you know, I, in my experience, and you know, and having to talk to some, some different folks in the business, uh, the, the titles don't often reveal, you know, exactly what someone does. But to hear what you're saying, I mean, you know, uh, you could have had in a whole, whole. You were a multi hyphenate. Um, yeah, and that was not on anybody. Nobody wanted that. I mean, you'd certainly, mm-hmm. if you're if you're having recent, I've been, sorry, having become an exec producer not that long after that, yeah. I would think back and go, what if I had to depend on my staff writer for everything? That's a mm-hmm. nightmare. <laughs> the staff writers are supposed to be just kind of helpful mm-hmm. in learning, like an apprentice. Right. And here was Maury, and Maury had never done television. Maury was a film producer, so a film writer and producer. So now we had Jim had these two guys. He's trying to teach while being under the gun and shooting and. Yeah, it could have been uh, I, I, a stop and start for me. I didn't know my first script was, I don't know, 20 pages over too long. You know, and I didn't know that. <laughs> just things like that. You just learn as you go. Yeah. Uh, casting. Um, so, yeah, I, I ended up writing a few, uh, you know, with my credit on them. And then we would also bring in freelancers because we had no choice. We would bring freelancers and, and give I them see. a script. And then and then they w- we would either rewrite them or not. It was sort of the traditional way that they used to be long ago. Like when TV was black and white, that's how you did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but we didn't have a room, you know. Yeah. We didn't have a room, so 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 and and uh, you know so that's a distinction from today, obviously. And another distinction seems like you know a lot of the programming then, and maybe because you didn't have a writer's room, I would imagine there wasn't an arc that would go through. A whole, and especially now, you're telling me you got you got you know an episode or two at a time. There wasn't a story arc that pulled us through an entire season. So how would you come up with the stories? Was it just? Uh, you know, stuff out of the newspaper or, or we noticed sometimes episodes were somewhat parodies of what was popular at the time, you know, Indiana Jones, yeah. for example, that sort of thing, uh, where folks were, were you and Maury and James just pitching each other ideas and then, yeah, yeah, that was it. We pitched, yeah, we, we all just pitched. We had a, um, a, a whiteboard maybe at the time and, uh, and we just come up with ideas. I, uh, I moved, 
houses not too long ago and I found my files and I still have my misfit stories. Mm-hmm. I don't throw anything away because I, I could probably turn one of those into something now. But yeah, the idea was yeah. we writers then, and I hate to be, I don't, I don't want to be this old guy that says how <laughs> things were, but cause there was, uh, there was exceptions, but you were required to develop your own stories. Uh, you had to come into the room and pitch stories. Now it's more like because the showrunner is, is, is kind of the auteur, uh, writers come in and listen and help right. and stories are helpful. But back then it was required. You brought in stories. So I would bring in, you know, seven, eight, 10, whatever stories, just say, how about this? Mm-hmm. How about this? And I remember fighting for one that was about a, it was a kind of a flowers for Algernon story about, mm-hmm. uh, they, a, it was a science experiment where a pig, um, it gets uh, smart uh-huh. <laughs> and gets really, really smart. And Jim says, no. And I just, because I was new, I said, no, no, we can make this work. And I remember just not letting it go until finally it became this joke. Like I was just a smart pig. I would just say smart, whenever we'd get, we'd get out of stories. I go smart pig. You go, no, we're never doing the smart pig. I still think it was, I, I, I promise you, I still have about 10 pages on that. But, um, but yeah, you, yes, we had to have stories. And because television had not yet gotten to a serialized place or even quasi serialized episodic was still the model, you know, universal was doing, whether it was a Magnum or whether we we're doing equalizer, you know, you had a, a crime or a story. So it was still a crime show. Right. Uh, something had happened and somebody had to solve that problem. Right. And that was the show. And then gradually you'd have like in any show, Oh, that person likes this character. And so they're going to maybe go on a date and was, but it really was rare. You people watch TV to, to, to see the same thing over and over again, basically okay. uh, those characters. And that was an easy way for me to learn too, because there was a, form, a formula Yeah, it's pejorative, but it was a, there was a, a way to do it. And you had the first act. I mean, there were four acts and the first act was a setup and the right. end of the act one was the first problem. And I remember then the end of act three was jeopardy. End of act three was jeopardy. Mm-hmm. You just write that there and you work toward it, right? But huge story turned into end of act two, jeopardy in three. Oh my God, we got to get out of jeopardy and then wrap up. So you knew that going in and I still use that now. I mean, people like Greg Berlanti, who's Greg, right. I think he's got, I don't know, 150 shows on the air or something, but people <laughs> who have learned from him say that they learn still the basics. You break the story a certain way right. in at least the concept of it. And then you play within that. But at least, you know, at the end of act one, so you, say, you know, it's, there's, it's, that's why I like TV. There's a structure that then allows you to, uh, to experiment within that, but there's structure. Right. Yeah, we we um and as viewers, and obviously you wouldn't you would only write that way because as well, I should maybe I'm not saying this right. Hmm. As viewers, I could say we find great comfort in that. There's something we want to be surprised, but there's something at least hitting those act breaks that you know there's. Well, uh, I don't know, we want uh, we want it to be formula formulatic like that, whatever yeah. that word is I'm looking yeah. for there. But I'm going to say don't... formulaic, but that's only because I'm a professional there. writer. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're. We got you on the show, yeah. but yeah. Um, we also want to have that belief that it could go bad, even though we really know it's not. It's not going to. But you want that that feeling that oh my god, this could really go bad for them. You just want that yeah. suspension of disbelief. So, and we all do. We all do now. I'm uh, I'm watching my my, my uh, 15 year old decided she wants to watch all the Jurassic Park movies with me. Uh, and steam runs out of that pretty quickly, but we're watching the, uh, the lost world ones. And I'm, mm. you know, I'm watching going, I don't know how he's going to get out of that. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's, I don't know. Yeah. There's no, and of course, part of my brain says, since he's 
in the next three movies. I bet he does. <laughs> but, but you do. You suspend that for a moment. You do. And that's, that's the fun. Making it realistic. And it's why I never like Moonlighting, as you know, as the show you're very familiar with, I'm sure. sure. Mm-hmm. It had, um, it ran uh, off its rails a bit when it started saying, you know what? Nobody cares about that. Nobody cares about the formula. We're just here to watch the fun. Right. And, and now you still had to believe to some degree. Yeah. That that there was jeopardy. Anyway, so that's that's so that's story wise. And I know you didn't ask for some yeah. sort of uh, tutorial <laughs> on on how we did stories, but no. that was uh, no, well, that actually I like that stuff a lot. I think that's cool. It's interesting to me that and we talked about this. The poetic going back to the poetics. It's like which came <laughs> first that humans anticipate these certain things, or writers found them. You know, it's it's. It's interesting yeah. that uh, we were we had, we all had copies of the poetics. We had Homer. We had all of that, and we would never stop looking through those. No, I'm kidding. No, we didn't do any of those. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> dust. The no. spine was never. The binding was yes. never broken. If Joseph Campbell didn't come up in a day. No. That was not a good day. <laughs> <laughs> but the hero, the journey. Yeah, uh, but so, it's true. It's true. I mean, we all have these experiences. We okay. What what do we have to solve here? And I think the first one I wrote was the first one we shot after the pilot that had an Indiana Jones kind of thing. Yeah. We had this idea that uh, we were going to do something where they find the law, find the Mayans. Yes. The Mayans disappeared. Okay, but where'd the Mayans go? Where'd they go? And <laughs> I worked on that forever, and I was really getting behind. And we we're getting in trouble. I couldn't figure out. Couldn't figure out. I was driving home. I had an apartment in Beverly Hills at the time, <laughs> and I'm driving home, and I. And I pass a sign that says, welcome to Beverly Hills. And it just all of a sudden, like, oh, they, they, they went to Beverly Hills. Of course. <laughs> and that was that was it. I said, oh, what if there's tunnels underneath? And then I did some quick research again, which probably meant a library. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did some research about there's a network of tunnels all under L.A. that were from the 20s and 30s. And they're still here now. And I said, oh, okay. So I went in the next day and it just kind of made sense. Oh, now that's funny. That's a misfit story. That's right. funny. Yep. Uh, and nothing else we were doing was, was, was getting it. So what you don't know what's a misfit story or what's a mm. Seinfeld or whatever until you go, oh, that's it. That's what it was. And that's mm. still in my life, still writing stories all day today. What, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's it missing? Mm. And so that was when I remember my very first moment of revelation. As a writer, like, oh, there it is. And, you know, then we did that one. You know, did you, do you know who played the, um, the kid in that, right? Did you notice who I plays do, the kid? yes. It was uh, yeah. D- Dean Devlin, right? It's Dean Devlin. It's he was crazy. an actor at the time. Yeah. Yes. I know. And now Dean is not an actor. Yes. Now he's destroying the earth on a regular he, basis. He's a massively successful producer, <laughs> yes. But, I, but someday I will, when I run into him, I will, I will uh, bring up a picture of him and misfits. <laughs> yes. Yes. You're talking about your place or Mayan. We yes, love, your we, place or mine, yeah. We love the puns, too. Yeah, that was... Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's fun. Yeah, it's it's funny to hear you tell that story about Beverly Hills because it's almost how we experience the episode where the characters are like that. Or, or when it cuts to, you know, like, where is it going to be? Cut to Beverly Hills. We're like, yes, we're cheering. Yes, it yeah. has to be that. Oh, it's, yeah, it was a jewelry store or something, right? I, remember, right, I, I, right. I, I can vaguely remember. Yeah. I remember going underground and seeing right. that huge, it was a hugely expensive episode. I think it killed our next three episodes <laughs> to shoot it. But but yeah, and, and we had already, by writing scripts, we had already known at that time uh, how we shot it that Billy... Hayes would say things like, let's go without us realizing. And and Dean Paul would say, you know, I say, let's go in every scene. (laughs) Right. Oh, okay. And so we go, okay. And he go, no, 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 no. Could you take some out? I said, no, no, no. Now, now you pointed out, he says, let's go in every scene. That's his thing. So Billy Hayes says it all the time. (laughs) 
Uh, we had a he, he did there was one where he mixed it up I think it was the one with the the, the mole men in the tunnels uh, he says oh, he yeah. says uh, misfits ho we like that especially <laughs> yeah and probably because it was like why you're not going to say but let's go yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that was so oh, yeah Johnny V had it Johnny V had a girl down in the tunnels yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, since we're nerding out at this moment, I want to ask you a couple of real mm-hmm. nerd uh, misfit questions here. One, you know, sure. the the rumor is that uh, you know, tra- tragically, we lost so many folks that worked on the show. It's it's it's, so. it's very sad. But um, including just a couple of years ago, we lost Mickey Jones, who was on the first episode. Yes. Um, the rumor is he disappeared because Marvel had a problem with his character and his uh, ice powers. Well, that I have no idea. I'm afraid okay. I can't tell you. I mean, I can't. It's not that I can't tell you. I don't know. Okay. Um, I thought that he went away because we just didn't have room for another yeah. superhero that, that had to, had such limited powers. Right. That was what. That's what we were told in the room, and that's what I remembered. Yeah. But it may. It may be more than that. And Jim would know. And are you talking to Jim, or is well, he refused know, we, to talk to you? <laughs> we reached out to Jim through his uh, contact, yeah. his company, and we haven't heard back. In fact, Jim was my last uh, lunch before uh, LA shut down mm. and we couldn't have any more. Yeah. Mm. We had lunch. Uh, it, it's such a Hollywood thing. We had lunch at Musso and Frank's um, uh, you know, right in Hollywood. And then the next day, nobody could ever have lunch again. So that was, that was <laughs> yeah. my last human, that was my last human contact. <laughs> and never will again. Yeah. Um, no, yeah I, okay. So I don't know about beef. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what happened there. So it seems like, you know, sci-fi has been around since TVs began, but um, it seems like in the eighties, there were more sci-fi television, and this is somewhat anecdotal, but somewhat based on some loose research, not done at a library, just done on the internet, uh, mm-hmm. where uh, we had more television shows that were some had some sci-fi fantasy element in the 1980s than in prior decades. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 having lived through that as a creator during that era, is what, what is any sense for what was happy, happening culturally that might account for that, that our tastes were skewing in that direction? It's a, it's a very interesting question, and I can pretend to answer it, but I won't because uh, I don't know because I had not thought about that actually. I mean, you know, I'm, I've always wanted since all oh, things are. You know, I can understand why Dirty Harry and those movies came out of Nixon, and I, I get all of that, but it never actually occurred to me until now that we're looking at uh, at that era where you had uh, you know Spielberg was coming to prominence, right. and then the, and some of the sillier movies too, whether it's Weird Science or right. or uh, I don't know Inner Space. I can't remember what yeah. was when, but but yes, uh, and there were so everybody was trying to find that that little thing uh, that, that that robot or that gimmick. And I don't know. It's a, it's a very good question. I think maybe on my podcast I'll have you call in, and I'll have you and I'll ask you that question because you've probably <laughs> done more more thinking. But yeah, the fantasy was everything was fantasy, yeah. uh, and and so of course you're. You're, you're talking about a show that I said, is it like weird science? No, I think mm, there might've been a show called, I think there was a show called weird science. They I did believe. do a TV version. Yeah, right? they tried. I think they did. Yeah. And I, and so, yeah, um, uh, Jim would be able to tell you better than I would, but I know that Brandon Tartikoff asked him to do this show because it was in the air. Jim did not pitch this show. Brandon Tartikoff, uh, said, uh, said, you know, we've got a, uh, we got, we got an opportunity here to do, uh, to do this show about science and we think it should be funny and they pitched around a while and that's what Jim came up with. But, uh, yeah, he must, cause Brandon was all about what was in the zeitgeist. Mm. That was, that was what his genius as a programmer was. Is he'd be the guy going, Oh, okay. I see where we're going here. We need more shows about science or whatever. Right. Uh, and so that would have come from him. Absolutely. Examining what's out there. Right. 
And even beginning with the Twilight Zone, and uh, mm-hmm. it seems that you and, and shows that you've worked on since, and you know, just just sticking with 1980s for mm-hmm. one brief moment, talking about Alf. But yeah. even beyond that, sure. a decade, you've often worked on shows or created shows that had some sort of sci-fi or fantasy element. Even thinking about Samantha Who, it's not necessarily fantasy, but mm-hmm. it's you know, uh, tweaking reality in a way. Yeah, um, I guess I didn't think about that. You're right. You're you, right about that. You, have you been drawn to that those sort of genres? Well, you're- I was, yeah. I, it's funny. I, now that being a, a science fiction nerd or a horror nerd is such a, a an elevated thing, I can't compete with any of those people. I was never a <laughs> comics person. Uh, you know, I worked on, uh, not that long ago, I worked on Sleepy Hollow. And right, it was hysterical yeah. because I was the guy in the room that would go, what's that? What? Who is that? Who's that guy? And everybody would turn to me and go like, you know, like, 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 like the slow kid in class to go, okay, look. And I would just on purpose mix up Star Wars and Star Trek just for them, just to watch them go nuts. Yeah. (laughs) But, but no, I mean, I'm not, I I was drawn to speculative fiction. Uh, I, I read a lot of Harlan Ellison. I read Stephen King. I read Ray Bradbury, still my favorite of all time. Uh, And so these, yeah, there was an element and I thought that I might be a fantasy writer when I, came out and that I, I got in touch with Ray Bradbury. I actually got to talk to him and I worked with Harley. So yeah, that was what I thought I wanted to do. I could have written Twilight Zone the rest of my life. It was mm-hmm. such fun to be able to come up with an idea, pitch it and write it in like a day, like just like a short story. Right. That was amazing. And so, yes, I would have loved to have done that. Um, and then Misfits seemed to be a good, a good fit for that, I suppose it, it, it required some thinking, but I never after that really drifted into any of those areas. And I think because there are so many people that live and breathe them, right. uh, that uh, even now when I have a, I have a horror, a, a horror thing that I, I'm going to pitch to Netflix, but I really feel overmatched. Mm. You know, like, yeah, you've, there are people who can world build and I'm more, always about an individual character. So you bring up Samantha who I didn't think about it that way, but I think about duality. I think about, people not being who they are and so that you can put that in a you can do an ai or you can do a person with amnesia sure you're you're going to have the same idea uh the same character so i always came from the character place and i know everybody says they do but i guess i mean i can only come from the character place mm. well yes yeah and, and, and you know and folks that do say that still seem to be you know somewhat disingenuous uh in the sense that they rely uh on the gimmick of the uh you know whatever the trope is yeah, and, and i'm and i'm not good at and i'm not good at the gimmick i'm just not that i'm i'm not that inventive uh, when it <laughs> when it uh, when it comes to world building you know and saying oh I, i'm amazed when i watch people watch the shows and i love watching shows like that but i go wow it would have never occurred to me to to develop an entire uh, system of language and uh, currency <laughs> i don't wanna i don't feel like it <laughs> so while we've got you, I won't keep you much longer, but... Uh, no, it's fine. You can, I mean, I'm, I'm fine. I, if I go in the other room, uh, I have to see my family. So <laughs> you're, you're now my family. So I think we should talk until tomorrow, early in the hours. You have to watch the rest of Jurassic Lost World. Or <laughs> no, it'll, it'll be there. But she's not in school now, so she doesn't. Nobody except me has to get up in the morning. So they wow. stay up all night long. Mm-hmm. So believe me. Yes. Anyway, so, yes. so yeah, so we did Misfits. And, and you were talking about the people that we've lost on that, that yes. show. Yes, tragic. Uh, and Diane mentioned Dean Paul. How- Dean Paul was a great friend of mine. I'm sorry to interrupt, but right? Dean Paul was one. Mm. Dean Paul, oh my God. He, first of all, he was the first one I'd ever lost. Like first, because mm. I was young. I was 25 years old when I, uh, yes, when I got that job, I was 25 years old. So mm. everything was new to me. Uh, Courtney and I became friends because she was brand new to Hollywood and I was brand new and we're both from the South. She's from oh. Alabama. 
and I'm from Florida. And so we really bonded on the Southern thing and she cooked chicken for me and my wife at the time would cook for her. So we bonded on that. And then I was Dean Paul's only normal friend, mm. only non, uh, he was really yes. proud of that. He, huh. he grew up, he grew up in Beverly Hills and the entertainment sure. industry and rock and roll. And I was the only person he knew that wasn't from that. And so we would go out and hang out and he would introduce me to, uh, almost like a pet. And, and people, <laughs> I, 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 we, I remember having a, a coffee shop with Robert De Niro and James Woods wow. and, uh, and, and uh, Desi Arnaz Jr. And then they're looking at me like, so what do you do? Like, so, <laughs> and what's it like for you? So anyway, so Dean Paul, yeah, he was a great guy. So yeah. Um, yeah and Diane, I think I stayed in touch with Courtney still today. I, I saw Courtney last year. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, Diane mentioned how good-hearted uh dean paul was just how so much of a great guy good guy he was which you know again not to be cliched having grown up as you know uh among hollywood elite just even as you explain it it's it's, it would be cliche for me to and it is and i do would expect otherwise but to hear that he's such a his character is so warm and uh, endearing to hear that he was like that in real life is you know yeah uh, he was he was genuinely a good guy and grateful for everything that he had uh, he never stopped being grateful. He just saw he saw it from the outside. Like, can you believe this? He took the last thing before he, before he died. Uh, we spent that weekend together in Vegas because mm. uh, you know his dad had a suite uh, had a suite at Bally's but permanently, and we would just walk around. He'd say, "Can you believe this? We believe we're just going to go backstage at, at the and we're just going to do whatever we want." And he would just crack up, wow. you know, not like it, not like an asshole, just a uh, mm. regular guy. So anyway, so yeah, I've I've still I've still got like several friends from that show. And, yeah, and uh, an next friend. So we decided to pretend like Courtney Cox never did anything outside of the '80s, and we reached out yeah. to her and, and to her folks and pitched that idea. Can we have her come on our podcast? We're doing this recap. We're going to pretend like she didn't do anything else. You know, they said she's uh, not. She's not doing publicity right now. She's sort of laying low, <laughs> uh, which is fine. Yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> that would be pretty funny. <laughs> but you know, to get her, get her on, on that joke, or she, that would be that she would talk like uh, like that was her last job. Yeah, we're you know? never going like, to let up mm-hmm. on that. <laughs> be like uh, talking like like talking to Anne Shadeen from from Alf. Like <laughs> that, the problem. I think it was her last job. But uh, mm. yes, that'd be kind of funny. <laughs> Yo, so speaking of Alf, um, yes. again another sci-fi show, and folks know mm-hmm. folks listening to our podcast know who Alf is. They don't need any. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and Ray has a particular uh, fondness for Alf because he eats cats and uh, I can't yeah. get real Ray's fix on cats. I, I think maybe Ray doesn't like cats, but he's had cats. Uh, he's owned them. I, I don't know. When you say he's had cats. <laughs> <laughs> I, if I said he had cat, that might be. Oh, okay. I see. Like, I see now. All right. Yes, okay. I, I grew go. up with a lot of cats in the house. So I oh. eventually just decided I just don't like cats because there's just so okay. many of them growing up. And when Alf uh, decided they were a delicacy, I thought that was hilarious. That's yeah, that's my favorite part of that show. So, so yet, okay. yet again, you know, you're working on a again a fantasy level sort of you know or fantasy mm-hmm. sci-fi show. It seems like you're working again with a uh, you know Tom uh, co-creator Tom Patchett who yeah. had you know, worked, you know, the decade before on a number of shows that well-known and well-regarded television mm-hmm. shows you have, you know, working again. And once again, you're now story editor. I'm, it, it, has it already, uh, un, unlike Twilight Zone, Misfits, it, it, are, you, are things evolving now for you? It's just a short time after Misfits ends, but uh, where you're not having to pull triple duty and quadruple duty, uh, the, the yeah, writing was, room is there was a writing room maybe now developing or, yes oh yes it was an enormous change for a couple of reasons i got um the difference in doing a one-hour 
uh, drama versus a sitcom was was uh, is as big as it can get. Mm. They're they're like they're not even the same job. And so, and I wanted, um, I remember this, uh, and again, you're, I'll talk, I'll, uh, I'll talk and you edit whatever you want, but, uh, <laughs> I was standing on the set, one of our last misfits episodes of standing with Bert Brinkerhoff, the director and Bert, Bert was great. And, uh, we're standing there waiting for magic hour right. and the sun had to go down exactly the right time. And we had to shoot and it was up in, um, up North, uh, of LA and it was cold. We're standing there waiting, not speaking, not speaking, not speaking. And Bert turned to me and said, you know, there's a job where you're inside all day long. <laughs> and a year later, he was the show director for uh, the Newhart show. Mm. And I was on Elf, both of us indoors for the rest of our lives. And part of it was, I just, <laughs> I wanted to, I, I, I'd, I'd studied theater in school. And I wanted to be a playwright kind of at heart, but didn't have the guts to move to New York. So sitcoms were like playwriting. So that's why I wanted to do that. Misfits and Twilight Zone were really outliers for me. Uh, that what I was drawn to was, was a multicam sitcom. That's, that was my dream. That's what I wanted to do. Those, uh, and so when Max Wright got cast, right. Max Wright was my connection from Misfits to Alf. Oh, and, okay. uh, sure. and I didn't, I mean, I, again, I don't think my agent was, was getting any traction. And so I called, uh, Max. I said, can you please tell Tom Patchett? He has to read my script. I had a spec script and he did and he brought me in and tom was you know there was no thing he he put together a room of people that didn't do fantasy there wasn't anybody in the room to do fantasy. we didn't look at it that way right uh it was a family sitcom and so the room was filled with so many talented writers uh there were emmy awards represented all over the place from family ties to tom himself and and thad mumford from uh he'd done mash most recently before that right uh so there was a very high level staff and i and then me at the, at the far end of it, I had nothing. I was nobody. So I was, I was just there to learn. And of course, I was too young to understand that. So I just spoke up all the time. And I, I had to be smacked down constantly. It'd be great if you said uh, smart pig at some point. I, I might have tried to pitch that one. Or they loved it. That's I finally found the place to do the smart pig show. Uh, but yeah, I was just I was just in this room full of great, experienced people, and I would just speak as if I was one of them. I was I was the original millennial, I guess. Um, uh, and I finally, you know, I had to learn gradually how to how to behave in a writer's room, and and then I got to learn from all those people. And I think I wrote four episodes of that that season, uh, which was you know an incredible learning opportunity. So I got I got I got to learn fast. Right. Yeah, and you're right. Uh, I forgot to mention the Misfits connection there, Max, right? And of course, Diane Carey mm-hmm. appeared at least on one episode opposite Max. I think maybe maybe another one. And she was great on that, too. Well, on, Diane was on that? Yeah, she had a, she oh. played like his assistant on Alf, Max Wright's character. Um, I did not remember that yeah. because um, I don't think I think we... Uh, yeah, okay. Right, okay. Anyway, but she, I only did season yeah. one of Alf. I was done. Oh, after, okay. after one, after one, I was done. I think right. um, most of us were. Most people left after one well, yeah. and went on to other things. Yeah, and I don't know if you want to talk about that or not, but, you know, certainly, again, mm-hmm. the, the, the behind-the-scenes story is that uh, lots of things, including folks being frustrated, uh, opposite, acting opposite a puppet, having <laughs> to avoid uh, trap doors on stages, which presented, you know, a new type of hazard that most actors don't necessarily have to face. Yeah. Um, and um, otherwise, just general sort of you know uh, tension on, on on set. There was a there was a lot of tension, and I actually can't uh, remember. I know that Max, of course, had Max is a sensitive guy. You know, uh, Max Max was going through some stuff where I think taking abuse from 
from the puppet all day might have affected him in a way that it didn't affect others. I can't really speak for him, except he would get really, really mad, yep. Max would. And Paul, um, uh, Paul didn't really differentiate between himself and Alf. Mm. So Paul was, it was kind of like being berated by Alf all the time for all of us. Uh, you know, and I like Paul, Paul was a really funny guy. Uh, but I think that that sort of the, the we, we, it was shot in a guerrilla style in that, um, the money was belonged to Bernie Brillstein and Tom and Paul. It was their money. They put up the show. They were making it themselves. And so when it's your own money, you, uh, you're stressed all the time. Mm. Uh, and I that's how but that's how they made money on the show is they owned it 100 percent and there was no studio. They were the studio. Mm. And so all the pressures that came with shooting uh, was were entirely on them. Mm. So, uh, you know, but they were incredibly funny guys. I mean, we laughed all the time mm. uh, until for some reason after that, we said, no, I'm, I'm out of here. I think it just got exhausting. We did yeah. 25 that first year. And, you know, it was just it was just a lot. Plus, I had an opportunity to move on and develop my own things. I think people just there was a time when comedy writers could say, nah, and move on to do something else. Yep. Uh, but but the but the there were so many. Yeah, it, it was kind of a it's a whirlwind because you go in and just make this show seven days a week about a puppet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it goes on TV and it's a huge hit. You go, oh, yeah. I had no idea. We didn't know it was a hit. We thought it was funny. Mm. Yeah, I I, it was funny, but uh, I'm going to make it a hit. I had I read that uh, some quotes attributed to Max that um, you know he 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 was frustrated. Some others were frustrated that the best lines were going to the puppet, for example. Um, but ultimately, that Max was uh, he, he was uh, I guess heartened by receiving a lot of fan mail, folks explaining how much they loved the show and how important it was to them. Uh, you know, helped him get through it. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I think that it. Uh, you know, Max was he was from New York. He's living in L.A. and he's working with a puppet, and he was just far away. I just think. Uh, he, uh, he seemed to drift <laughs> sometimes, but he was very talented yes. and so good to write for. I loved to write scenes between just those two people. I mean, I still, uh, Andrea Elson, uh, I got to know on the show. She was the girl and, and she was terrific. I think she, I think she left that business and became like a regular person. Um, but she married Tom Patchett's nephew who, um, who she met on that show. He was a PA and they're still married. So, uh, you know, I like, I like it when things stay something that's a yes. distant, distant past, uh, is just still resonates forward now. And of course, everybody, I don't care what I did. If I were to, okay, I did, um, I was the showrunner of this is us a couple of years ago, uh, first season and in interviews, Alf always came up <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about Alf because that's, it's, there, it occupies a certain uh, time in the lives of people who aren't even born yet. Mm. I don't know what it is, but everybody knows who that is. Alf. Misfits is a rarer thing. You might be the only people mm -hmm. thinking and watch, watching that. Although we did get interviewed by a German company not that long ago who were putting out all the DVDs and they were excited. So I don't know. Yeah, you know, I, th I think I know what company you're talking about, only because I think that's the only way you can get the DVDs now. Is it from this it actually is. And I, I never, Jim has them. Um, I have a couple of VHS tapes because the colorist for the show, for Misfits, was a friend of mine, and he dubbed off the last two episodes. Because the last episode nobody's ever seen. It might be on oh. that DVD set, but it's oh. called... Uh, that's, it's, uh, that's not Three Days in the Blender? Yes. And is that out there now? Because it was not finished, you know. I mean, no, I don't know what... I know. I don't, have you seen it? We haven't gone that far yet. We're, we're, I don't, yeah, we're not I mean, that far yet. I, 
I don't know how I, I'd be curious to see what you see. Cause we didn't finish it. Um, no. I was on the set. Uh, that was the first thing I ever got to produce. I don't, I might even have producer credit. I'm not sure, but I got to produce it because Jim had a pilot and Misfits numbers were really low. So he went and did his pilot and I got to produce that episode hundred percent, but they cut the budget back. And then the last day of shooting, I looked around behind me, behind the camera was all, all the executives. I said, that's interesting. They came down to on my last day of shooting. That's exciting. I'd never done this before. I didn't realize that's what that meant that you were being canceled. Oh, the executives came down to the set to say, thanks everybody. And we're wow. done. And that means, and they, so they didn't, they also didn't post the show. The show wasn't going to air. They said, we're just not going to post it. Mm. You're done. I said, no, wait, hold on. It was really good a script too. So I got the people there to post it to the editors doubled up and, and, and added some time to some other shows they were doing and they cut it. And then the colorist got it and dubbed off a copy, but it was never finished. It was, there was no sound. Uh, it was all rough. And so I'd be curious to see what's on those DVDs. Uh, oh. Like, what did they get? Maybe they have a better version than I do. Mm, uh, yeah. Mine is mine. Mine looks like a home movie, but it's kind of supposed to, it was a first, it was an early mockumentary. We did a mockumentary style. As I Google it here, I see it's on YouTube. You can watch it. Oh, okay. I have to go. No, at some point, I'm going to go. I got to go. Now. I'm going to go watch it right now. Oh, so now, now you want to see uh, your family? I do. I do. No, uh, yeah. I'm going to. No, God, I'll watch it here. But that. But that was my because I remember the, the, the script was funny and it was bizarre and it was a it was a kind of a mockumentary style about um, about Dean being uh, in jail. He was in jail or uh, Belly was in jail uh, for. Mm. Yeah, it had to do with a blender that had been classified because there was a chip in it that had then been repurposed onto an ICBM missile. And so that blender was now contraband, but the blender, he had, it's like he mailed it back to his mom, but it got lost in the mail. So when it finally arrived, it was something that she was a, I don't know. It was pretty, it was a pretty funny <laughs> nice. idea, but it all had to do, it all had, to, it was very misfits because he was sitting in jail because he possessed a blender that was, uh, that had a, um, a secret chip in it. Oh. You talked about, you've got a bunch of misfits, of science stuff that you said you just recently found, right? Yeah. My file. Yes. I've like been merchandise. Only thing I have in merchandise is my jacket, which I'm never going to give up. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, well, my question is, with 80s uh, pop culture so big right now, do you mm -hmm. think they could do a reboot using the original stories you wrote from then? For Misfits. Do you, yeah. Do you think you could do a whole reboot with the original stories? Because no one's done anything like that so far. That's a good question. Um, I mean, the stories, as long as you – so basically your idea would be don't update them. Just take them from the time and say we're do, we're in we're in the eighties well, now. Yeah, the 80s, yeah. I'm yeah. talking about set it in the eighties and use all sure. the ideas that you That's had that you didn't use originally. Yeah, they're also also they might suck, but I have to look <laughs> at them. Except for the obviously yeah. smart pig is the pilot. Yeah, you um, can go back but, and like you know work them up a yeah, little bit, to, but the original ideas that you had. <laughs> I remember. I was just remembering of one because uh, no matter what show you do, you're gonna. You, you, you have to shoot so far in advance. You don't know what's happening, but we shot one um, about a, um, an, an Aboriginal man trying to get to the space shuttle. Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. And I was like, are you, that's, that sounds like such a, a, a drug induced <laughs> idea uh, that yeah, a man, they find a man who, who mm -hmm. was a missing link of some kind. Yeah, lost, I think yeah, they called him link, the that's lost right. link. Yeah, and, lost and link. he wants to get to the space shuttle. And I don't remember why he wants to the space shuttle. He saw it, but, but we shot that one. And that was one that I remember having to learn how to write an entire act 
mm-hmm. in a day because we had to change <laughs> locations. And I turned out on a yellow pad. I turned out the act and I turned it over to my assistant and she had it to literally the typing pool. Back then there was a secretarial pool, a union pool. You couldn't type your own scripts. Mm. They had to turn mm-hmm. them out and then they'd send them to set. And we did this and it was great. And then um, the challenger. Uh, incident right. happened. Yes, mm-hmm. I walked into work one morning at about seven thirty in the morning, and we were watching the Challenger disaster. And Jim turned to me and said, "They're not going to air that one." And it was scheduled for this Friday, like right that coming up. Right. And so they just—I don't—I don't know if it ever aired. Uh, it might, it might be unaired, but, um, or maybe they moved it to the end or something, but yeah, I remember that. That's why I remember that we worked really hard on the challenger and then couldn't do it, but yeah, who would come up with the idea? I don't know. I'm going to go back and look at all those stories now because I'm really should. getting on the, getting on the space shuttle. That's, yeah, we were pretty messed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I remember, I'm trying to remember uh, once upon a time hearing the story, uh, I think it was the writer's room of like the Bugs Bunny cartoons. And again, you know, <laughs> you're saying the old style, maybe they didn't have writer's rooms, but that uh, the the what I remember was the story goes is that they were told we will put anything you think of into it. You know, it's nothing is too mm-hmm. crazy. Just whatever you think of is going in for the most part. You know, and it kind of explains sort of how loony, you know, for lack of a better word, maybe mm-hmm. these these those shows were. And, um, and you know, there is some sense of television in the nineteen eighties, including the Misfits, that anything can happen, and there was something so charming and wonderful about that. You know, where. Talking about formulas like we were yeah. earlier, and like Ray was suggesting, you know, we still want to be surprised. There was something surprising about shows like that where you could have that scenario, and it was fine. Mm-hmm. I guess Adult Swim is the only place you see that now. Uh, yeah. If you're going to watch a show like that, you go, I don't know, sure, fine. Yeah, that's that's, true. that's yeah. funny, and yeah, and, and Jim, but Jim had that sense of humor, and Jim, Jim let us do that because he's a he's a really goofy guy who can also mm-hmm. do incredibly good stuff, like he did. Uh, you know, Patriot, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. He didn't create it, but he was the exact producer of Patriot on Amazon. And it's just really funny and really strange if you haven't seen it, but also dead serious. So, uh, but he was somebody that I, uh, that I really appreciate allowing us to do a mix of styles. My whole career, I've mixed styles and usually to bad effect. Mm-hmm. That is, that is to say, not popular effect. I, they may, it may be brilliant. I don't know. Maybe I'll be discovered like Emily Dickinson someday, but, uh, but I, would, I know that I would say like uh, stuff, Edgar yeah. Allan Poe probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he was funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I, 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 so even now I'm, I'm doing things where I mix style, but Jim was the first one that I met where you were supposed to mix styles, what you're talking about. Like mm. that's funny, but there's also an emotional thing. Uh, this is really more of a comedy, but I think, you know, with the, it, it had some emotion to it, mm-hmm. not a lot. Uh, at the time, you know, you didn't do a lot of emotion in TV. Yeah. So, yeah, I think after that, when Universal offered me a deal to stay and work on Equalizer, and I did an Equalizer episode, mm-hmm. I then realized I didn't want to do that. I said no thanks because it was just about finding somebody to kill every week. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that was really it. It's like, who do we kill and how do we kill them? <laughs> And I didn't, I had just come off of doing this fun thing in Twilight Zone. I said, oh, this feels, doesn't feel like a good way to spend my time. Yeah. So that's why I went off and did, did ALF. Uh, but yeah, back to back, I had two pretty interesting, uh, interesting experiences there. You know, and just, I guess, to wrap this up uh, mm-hmm. and uh, going beyond Misfits, going beyond ALF, and to your point about combining, you know, sort of styles maybe to come up with something new. I'm curious if you'll make any comment about the Van Dyke show. <laughs> you know, I my understanding I mean, is you you maybe that was the, sh- the the shortest work you've ever done on a show 
Um, um, you would, well, you would think, uh, although it takes a while to, uh, to, before you get fired, you've done a whole lot of, of stuff. Yeah. Uh, why, what do you, what does your reason, what, what information do you have so I can, <laughs> I can make sure it's accurate? <laughs> and then you'll just say no comment. Uh, no, what, no, what, I'm yeah, what happy I, to. What I read and, you know, in interviews from at, at the time was that, uh, you know, you, you were a co-creator on the show. Uh, but no, I was the creator of the show. I'm sorry. Oh. I was the creator. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was the creator. I was the sole I, creator of the I show. Yes. My apologies. I just want to make sure that, yes. that as long as we're putting this uh, in the vault, you yes. should have it. Correct. And you know, I'm going to update your IMDb page with this info. So, uh, <laughs> thanks. But uh, creator of the show, uh, but that ultimately you and Mr. Van Dyke, Dick Van Dyke, mm-hmm. didn't see eye to eye as far as the tone, I suppose, and the style of the show. He wanted right. to do what he had been doing for you know 40 years, I suppose, or 30 years by then. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. you wanted to try to move him in different directions, probably more consistent with the time, I would imagine. Um, and, um, so that, that's the story. It, it, that's it, exact. That story is exactly right. Okay. And, um, because, uh, and Dick, you know, Dick being Dick, he just got, he got very nervous. We had a writer strike of 88 and during that writer strike, which was a really long one, um, he started to get really nervous. We had shot the pilot and we'd gotten it picked up and it was ordered, but we couldn't write anything. Mm-hmm. So without seeing any new scripts, he started to worry that maybe he was making a mistake and he decided after the writer's strike that he wanted to do something more traditional for him. But originally, his instincts were great. He wanted to do something like Slap Maxwell. Mm. So I don't know if anybody remembers we, Slap Maxwell. We love but, Slap Maxwell. Yeah, we well, and that was, yeah, and that was uh, Tom Patchett's former partner, Jay right. uh, uh, Tarsus. And Dick loved it and said, can we do something like that? You know, he was really interested in breaking out and doing stuff. So, yeah, that's exactly where I live. So we did something. It was still multicam, but it was a it was more cerebral, I think, uh, more yeah. character based. And we shot the pilot and then uh, Jim, uh, then Dick um, soured on it. And and then I got fired and replaced. Yep. So it wasn't like one of those firings like you get out of here. It was just like they just uh, he wanted somebody older. I remember going to see him uh, doing a talk at the Museum of Broadcasting. I was in the back. He didn't know I was there, but it was a talk with a cast of uh, some, I don't know, some Dick and pre Maury Amsterdam or whatever. And he was talking about the new show and he said, yeah, and they've got this kid working on it. I was 27. I was 27. So yes, I was very young. He was 62. I was 27. He's got that kid. He's barely out of diapers. He thinks he knows what's funny (laughs) and he doesn't know I'm in the back. And my wife is looking at me like, "Uh Oh, I don't know if this is going to turn out. Okay. (laughs) And then, yeah, that was the first time that was the writing that wasn't on the wall. That was like the writing on the notepad that ends up being uh, transferred to the wall. And so, we worked and I staffed it and we, we wrote some episodes and then um, a, a grant tinker brought me into his office and said, yeah, yeah, Jim, uh, we, uh, uh, Dick has been reading other scripts and he likes the new direction for these other people. And so they're going to run it. And that was uh, Bob Rick and Clark, Sam Barbara and Ron Clark. And, uh, and you're gone. So I, don't, I had a deal. So I just went off to my office <laughs> and I got out of my office. I watched them walk into the stage every day. So I got to, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's actually, a, it's a, it's, it's a sad thing for me because I really do believe that it would have been a good show. I, know, I, st- I have the pilot and I, and I like the script and I think that Dick would have benefited from it because what happened was they aired one and that was it. <laughs> and I'm, I mean, they, 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 and he, it was a disaster and I feel bad because <laughs> my name is still on it as creator. I think that's why it's co-creator. <laughs> I think I might share co-created on the, on the aired version uh, with uh, Bob Rick and Clark. That might be what that means. But right. yeah, originally I was the creator and then I think they had to share. So, but anyway, yeah. So I remember my agent calling me during the airing of it 
and said, hey, you're first created by, and we cracked up. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh. he knew how embarrassed I was. It was, a, it was awful. <laughs> it was a horrible show. So, uh, yeah. Uh, what's curious to me is that, you know, when you look at the sort of, uh, I guess, a high-level description of the show, this older gentleman who's, you know, from one era of entertainment, comes home to a small town and sort of is at odds with his son, who is, you know, the new generation of talent, uh, mm-hmm. It sounds like your conflict with Dick. Uh, that uh, uh, I would have think that would have been the chemistry necessary off screen. That that, so you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're better at this than I was. Um, it was really yeah. it was a father son thing. Uh, he yeah, it was about a guy coming and helping. It was a, it was an estranged father son, yep. and it was about yeah, the the son had taken up what dad does, but wasn't as good at it. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of tension there. And then dad comes and he gets back on his feet and enjoys performing and discovers that. And so they rediscover their relationship. Uh, and there was a musical number every, every, we were going to have original musical numbers. I had, uh, uh Asher and Minkin and Cy wow. Coleman, all these people lined up to do it. And so it was pretty ambitious. It was honestly more ambitious than I was ready for. I, uh, I was again, 27 years old. I'd never done anything. And that's what Grant invested in. He invested in people who had talent but didn't know what they were doing. Nowadays, you would never have let me do it without putting somebody with me. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, you just, that that was the only mistake. And Grant is <laughs> Grant was great, but he should have put somebody with me to help because I was just free to make my own mistakes. It's great, but I did. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I did. The story of you sitting in that talk, you know, where, where Dick's there talking. Do you, do you leap mm-hmm. to your feet at some point and you know jacques and then? Oh, I thought, boy, it it certainly was my instinct. Mm-hmm. I just wanted, you know, my instinct is always to do something dramatic. <laughs> but no, I just like, okay, I'm just going to slink out of here. And so, because I just didn't want to embarrass Dick. I was like, uh oh, I will embarrass him if he knows I'm there, and then he'll have to do. So I just got out of there. It's fine. Uh, now, after after I was fired, I wouldn't care about embarrassing Dick. Uh, but uh, but at the time, I thought it's my it's my. Yeah. But I did. Yep. Here's one of the big things you have to know when you're producing is talent relations. And I had I, I had not done any talent relations, mm. you know, at all. I I've never run anything, and uh, the, you know, puppet can't be can't be dealt with. <laughs> uh, so it's the hugest thing now. As how do you do? How do you deal with the star? How do you make the star happy? You know, right. so you do. By the time I did something like Samantha Who, and then I could be real partners with Christine Applegate, you know, that was that was great. It was a fantastic partnership. But that's when you're 27 years old and you think you know everything. Yeah. Uh, you're gonna make you know you're gonna piss some people off. Yeah. I definitely did. <laughs> uh, Don, we took up a whole lot of your yeah. time and certainly mm-hmm. appreciate it. I'm happy to um, talk. So thrilled <laughs> to finally speak with you. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, in- inject some new life into our recap now, uh, a highlight of our uh, recap, in fact, uh, of Misfits of Science. So, uh, well, if, if you, if you uh, need anything, you want to call back, I'm always happy to talk to people who remember Misfits of Science. <laughs> yeah, we would love to call you back after we see the final episode to, oh, to let you know what we thought. Oh, sure. I'm, I'm hoping sure. it's the home home. Uh, it looks like the home video so. footage. I, I, yeah. yeah, I hope so too. But, uh, now I'm going to have to watch. But please enjoy <laughs> and feel free to call anytime. Thanks, guys. Wow, I'm really surprised. Hey, you know, we wanted to talk to. Uh, we've been wanting to talk to Don Todd for some time now. When we first saw his name appear in so many of the Misfits episodes, and we noticed first he was a writer, then he was. A, I think he was always a story editor. Later, he becomes, I think, executive story editor, as we talked about. In finally getting to talk to him, I am surprised to learn that he did so much more than just write. You know, I can't help but think of mm-hmm. things in the way we understand how shows are made today, where people have very specific roles. 
but um, I'm even more grateful that we got a hold of him and learned so much. Such a so many stories. Could talk to him for another hour. Maybe we will. Yeah, I think we should. Well, we did say we we're going to talk to him after we finally see that last one. Yes. Yeah, I'm curious what's out there now based on what he told us yeah. about that. All so, right. so I think. Oh, I I think. Yeah. We have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yes. Okay. Hmm. That our decision to rewatch the Misfits <laughs> of Science was a really good one. <laughs> yes. Oh gosh, it certainly was, and we look forward to bringing you some more of those recaps. So hey, get caught up, and we will talk to you next time on the Idiots. See ya. See ya.